Okay, in keeping with our pincer strategy, let's turn to the front and the back of Romans. Romans 16 to start with. 16.21 to be exact. And before we get started, I do have an announcement. And I wish I could have made this last night because there was a visitation today. Many of you know Callie. Her last name is Kreitza. She usually sits right about here on Sunday mornings. She recently, as I think Pastor Brown mentioned, she recently donated a kidney to her brother, Bill. And shortly after that, the Lord called him home. And that's Bill Kreitza. He was 69. He was a Vietnam veteran. He worked 41 years for PPG, very well liked. Had a few moments to spend with Callie today in the visiting the visiting uh, part of the memorial service, and she's doing well. I assured her, and I know that all of you know what I'm talking about, that her self-sacrificing love for her brother does not go unnoticed by the Lord. It's certainly not a wasted self-sacrifice because... It will be noted and remembered for the rest of time and eternity as an act that commemorated the love of Christ in this world. Like the woman who poured the alabaster box of ointment on our Lord, our Lord said this act will be remembered. And so if you want to attend the funeral... And I would ask you to pray for Brian. Brian Messick, this will be his first funeral service as a pastor. And he'll be speaking there tomorrow. And it's the Sokolsky Zydek Funeral Home. That's C-I-C-H-O-L-S-K-I Zydek, Z-I-D-E-K. And it's in, it's 1522 Carlisle Street. Natrona Heights, and tomorrow, Brian will be doing the service there tomorrow. So I'm sure he's going to speak in such a way that he will glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm trying to read some of this myself, but so that is tomorrow at 10 a.m. So if any of you can get out there and support Callie and her family and also, Brian, who will be speaking the message tomorrow. And if not, at least keep him in prayer. So, and I made a New Year's resolution that I wasn't going to mention birthdays anymore, but what the heck. Larry Sheasley. It's his birthday today. And the reason I was so excited about it is I never knew he'd make it this long, this far. It's just it's amazing to me. But I guess God preserves ornery old guys like me. Like me, I said. Like me. And it's partly due to you, Faithful Judy. It's, if not 90%, due to you. you. Okay. This is our 20th installment of RTE, Romans the Epistle. Tonight's message is not friends, Romans, and countrymen, but friends, co-workers, and countrymen. 
And we'll go to Romans sixteen twenty one. Again, this is a pincer strategy. We're beginning at the front and the back, the extreme right flank, the extreme left flank. They press toward the center. And we're going to be dealing with all three. The left flank is Romans 1 through 4. The right flank, Romans 12 through 16. And there is a double center, chapters 5 through 8 and 9 through 11. That's the center toward which we are pressing. There is a passage that is at the heart of the heart, at the X-ring of Romans. And we'll probably end with that. And since we didn't gather together last night, I have much to say tonight. And... I'm grateful for all of you coming out tonight, as usual. Romans 16, and Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We pray that as we entertain the presence of your Son and Spirit, and as we entertain your presence, may you personally administer consolation and strength for the apocalyptic struggle in which we're engaged at this change of the ages. Strengthen our vision to see with bifocal vision, with bifocal lenses, the end of the old age and the inauguration of the new, which is inaugurated in Christ. Give us the assurance that we are, in fact, in Christ. And grant us the unity of the Spirit and the grace to maintain that unity in the bond of peace. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Romans 16.21, we have shown that Paul greeted many saints by name that were in Rome. Now we're going to mention some of his team members that were with him when he wrote. And he wrote in the home of a wealthy citizen of Corinth, at Corinth. The citizen's name was Gaius. He's a believer in Christ. And Paul, as usual, has a missionary team around him. Romans 16:21 Timothy my co-worker salutes you so do Lucius Jason and Sosipater my countrymen Timothy receives first mention among the members of Paul's missionary ter- team and Paul did have a team of missionary workers There is a strong missiology. That's a part of theology that we cannot neglect. Missiology. There is a strong missiology or mission orientation in Romans, which we plan to accentuate a significant, we could say, missional emphasis. Another word. Missional. I don't know if that's in the new dictionary. They put a lot of stupid, silly Words in there this time through, but here's some serious ones. Missiology and missional, the adjective. A strong missiology, a significant missional emphasis in Romans, as we will see. And this significantly affects you and me and each one of us. For each one of us forms an apostolate of witnesses, as we will also see. Timothy is therefore called Paul's co-worker. Co-worker is sunergos, S-U-N-E-R-G-O-S, sunergos. 
from which the, we get the English word synergy, and it's derived from that word synergos. Timothy is Paul's co-worker extraordinaire. He is, in other words, the exemplary co-worker, missionary co-worker. Paul, in writing to the church at Philippi, some of you may remember all the way back at the farm, Paul, writing to the church at Philippi in Macedonia, said of Timothy, I have no one like him, to make it direct and simple. And in Philippians 4.3, I think, and this is a new twist because I never thought of this before, but in Philippians 4.3, he may actually be addressing Timothy, who is the co-author of that epistle, incidentally. Paul and Timothy were co-authors of Philippians. And in Philippians 4.3, he may have been addressing Timothy as his genuine yoke fellow. The Greek there is G-N-E-S-I-E. Genesi. And then another S-U-N word. S-U-N-Z-U-G-E. Zunzige. Genesi Zunzige. And that means my genuine yoke fellow. Gnesse is a word that means authentic. He's true. He's authentic. And he's the co-author of Philippians. So in Philippians 4.3, Paul may actually be addressing Timothy as his genuine yoke fellow and who is also the co-author of Philippians, the epistle. Because Paul tells him, as if they're conversing, writing the letter, in front of the Philippians, that when he gets to Philippi, He's supposed to have a mission, which may be the most dangerous mission Timothy's ever been on, to reconcile two ladies in the Philippian church. And they were significant principal members of the church at Philippi. Lydia, of course, was the first. And women have many prominent positions, as we see in Romans, in the church as part of the apostolate, apostolate. Now we're going to generalize that term a little bit because every called and elected believer is part of an apostolate. And it's, a, it's an apocalyptic apostolate in our own time. These are new terms, but you'll get used to them. And I think you'll see them in the right context. He, when he gets there, he says, my true yoke fellow, I want you to get them to see eye to eye in the Lord. This is especially possible that he's addressing Timothy there with Sun Suge as well as Sun Ergos. Because Paul had already said in Philippians 2.20 that Timothy would be genuinely, notice this word, it's this word, Inesios. He would be genuinely or authentically caring about their interests. And so already in Philippians 2.20, when Paul says, there's nobody like Timothy who will genuinely care for your interests. He's a genuine caretaker. He's a genuine PT. And so he says, so my genuine yoke fellow, and I've never seen this in commentaries, but it's, it's simply interesting. He says... Help these two women see eye to eye in the Lord. Now this, again, this is especially possible that he's talking to Timothy while they're both writing this letter. Why not? 
So Philippians 4.3 may well be a rare case of Paul addressing his co-author in front of his addressees, which I think is an effective little thing if it's true. Timothy not only accompanied Paul on missionary excursions, he was also sent by Paul to places like Philippi and Thessalonica, sent by Paul to strengthen and comfort the believers there. That there is no one like Timothy is probably why he seems to have priority among those with Paul in Corinth who salute the Roman saints. And I'm using that word salute specifically because it is in a military metaphor, a militarily metaphorical situation. Timothy was to Paul as the disciple whom Jesus loved was to Jesus in John's gospel. In John 13, 23, John 19, 26, 22, and 21, 7. That Timothy salutes the saints in Rome once again evokes the military metaphor. In fact, co-worker itself, Sunergos, is associated in Philippians, with fellow soldier, co-worker, and fellow soldier. Describe one man. His name is Epaphroditus in Philippians 2.25. He is called soon, there's that word again, ergon, co-worker, ergonomics. We get that word also from ergon. Kai, the Greek, I'm only giving you the transliteration to make it easy on me and you. S-U-S. There's that root again, S-U, S-U-S-T-R-A-T. We're starting to look at something where we get the word strategy, I-O-T-E-N, sustratioten. So he's my co-worker and fellow soldier, fellow soldier. So we have, again, the saluting here has a military connotation, a strong one. So those who are engaged in missionary expeditions, and listen carefully to this, which in one sense, a real sense, a genuine sense, every one of us is in this world. We have been called out from it. We are not of it. We are in it, but not of it. We are sent into it. We are an extension of the divine missions as we have seen before in John. So those who are engaged in missionary expeditions or excursions are not only missional workers to advance the gospel, again, relating to Philippians 1.27, they are also soldiers engaged in the apocalyptic struggle and in the advancement of the kingdom of God. For there are many adversaries Philippians 1.28. Paul says, I have an open door to preach the gospel, but there are many adversaries. 1 Corinthians 16.9. And many of those adversaries are invisible foes, as Ephesians 6.11-12 says. So Paul uses the same term co-workers for Prisca and Aquila, whom he mentions in 16.3 of Romans, and for Urban, Urbanus, in 16.9. So this is the third use of that in Romans 16, co-workers. They were 
Urbanus, Prisca, and Achilla were on the receiving end of this epistle in this case, where Timothy is on the sending end. Outside of Romans, in 1 Corinthians 3.9, co-workers is used of Paul, Cephas, and Apollos. Paul, Cephas, or Peter, and Apollos. Paul says, we are co-workers. As part of Paul's strategy to end the factiousness in Corinth. For in the church in Corinth, there were divisions and factions, just as there were groups with their group biases that tended toward ressentiment, hostility, divisiveness in Rome. In the church at Corinth, Paul said, Cephas and Apollos and I are simply co-workers, and this was in order to end the factiousness in Corinth, the division there. For in that church there were divisions and factions that were excessively huddled around certain preachers. And some said, I am of Cephas, I am of Apollos, I am of Apollos. And others even had the audacity to say, I am of Christos, I am of Christ, meaning I am and you're not. I am and you're not, because I've attained this status, or I've attained this honor, or I've done this ritual, and you haven't. And it was a misuse of the term and the name, Jesus Christ. So, in 2 Corinthians one twenty four, Paul deploys the word, co-workers, to describe his relationship to all the saints in Corinth. We are co-workers. The pastor and the congregation are co-workers together because Paul says we are co-workers together with you for your joy, not to dominate your faith like legalistic preachers do, but we are helpers of your joy. In 2 Corinthians 8.23, he describes Titus as his co-worker. Philippians 2.25, Epaphroditus has that honor. In Colossians 4.10-11, Paul gives greetings to the church at Colossae from his Jewish co-workers. He makes it clear that they are Jewish Christians for many reasons. And their name is Aristarchus. Mark, and when he speaks of Mark, he's speaking of Barnabas' cousin and the author of the Gospel of Mark. Mark should be studied with the idea and with the concept that Mark was profoundly influenced by the Apostle Paul. And so Mark's Gospel was very strongly influenced by Paul. Mark accompanied Paul, John Mark, And also there was a man named Jesus who was called Justice, J-U-S-T-U-S in Colossians 4.11, whom Paul says, they are my fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. That is, they are consciously believing Jews. So there is a striking note of unity in these greetings, obviously, as Paul identifies co-workers and friends and countrymen. When he says kin or kinsmen, he's referring to countrymen who are with him and in Rome. All of Romans is a bid for peace among the saints. It's Paul acting as a minister, an ambassador of reconciliation, this time not to the world, but among the saints, among believers. 
And this is not unlike the very succinct command of Jesus, speaking of Mark, to his disciples in Mark's gospel. In chapter 9 and verse 50 and B, Jesus said, Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In a way, that sums up the message of Romans. Salt, as we've seen, represents, among other things, the quality of humility that preserves or maintains the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. And that's among believers. Peace among believers is a profound influence for the missional enterprise of the church. And that comes up too in Romans. Salt, why salt? Salt accompanies all of the Levitical grain offerings in Leviticus 2.13. Don't offer any green offering, grain offering, meal offering as they're called, without salt. And there's a wonderful correlation here, just as humility is the indispensable accompaniment of the sacrifice of ourselves to God in Romans 12.1. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That, accom- that must be accompanied by salt. The salt is the humility. In this case, have salt in yourselves. Have the humility that does not compete for superior honor. Have the humility that does not compare with one another, compare one another by one another, measure each other by each other, but rather instead be oriented to the incomparable Christ. And so, as salt is the indispensable element in the offering of the Levitical grain offerings, humility is the indispensable accompaniment of the sacrifice of ourselves to God in Romans 12.1, compared with James 4.10, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God is another way of saying present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And stop being conformed to this age, but rather be transformed by the miraculous renovation of your thinking. That's what is a what we call a radical epistemological conversion. Again, it's important to stress the missional emphasis in Romans and the fact that every saint is a messenger of God who is sent on a mission. Every saint, without exception. On page 149 of his book, The God Who Saves, David Congdon cites Karl Barth. In Christian Dogmatics, the most famous volume of Christian Dogmatics by Karl Barth is, of course, 2.2, 2.2, of all the 31 volumes or whatever it is, or 31 books that make up so many volumes. 2.2, line 413, 4.15, rather, Congdon, C-O-N-G-O-N, C-O-N-G-D-O-N, cites him in the following, he says, the elect individual, and Barth says this, is as such a messenger of God. He or she is sent. He or she is an apostle. Remember, we toyed with that idea with Andronicus and Junia among the apostles. There's a very generalized sense 
where every Christian is of the apostolate. It does not mean that they were of this unique band of brothers who had seen the resurrected Lord, but every Christian belongs to an apostolate. In fact, the church is an apostolate, a sent elect cadre of people who are supposed to be shoulder to shoulder and shield to shield and advancing together with the gospel of Jesus Christ not intimidated at all by the adversaries, many of whom are within Christendom, many of whom are in the invisible atmosphere, many of whom are ourselves. So again, citing Bart, the elect individual is as such a messenger of God, he or she is sent, he or she is an apostle, on the basis of the fact that Jesus Christ was elected to be the apostle of grace and in connection with the apostolate of grace that is the meaning and order of the life of Christ's whole community. That's again from Karl Barth, volume 2.2, 2, line 415. I'm going to repeat it again because it's very important. The elect individual is as such a messenger of God. He or she is sent. He or she is an apostle on the basis of the fact that Jesus Christ was elected to be the apostle of grace and in connection with the apostolate of grace, that is the meaning and order of the life of Christ's whole community. The meaning and the order of Christ's whole community is an apostolate. We are part of an extension of the divine missions. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit interrupts your life in an apocalyptic encounter, from that point on, you are my witnesses in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, including New Kensington. Interpreting Barth, Congdon writes, a very excellent young theologian of our time. I think he's on the bleeding edge of the 21st century theology. Congdon writes, and I'm not interested in his social things, his political things, his views on this or that. I'm interested in his theology. And that's all. But he writes, quote, election, in other words, is a divine commission to become a missionary witness to God's reconciliation of all things in Christ. Of all the things I noted in reading this while I was in absent from you, but still present in the paradox of presence and absence, this one jumped out more than almost any of them. And it's a very brief quote on page 149 of Congdon's book. Election, in other words, is a divine commission to become a missionary witness to God's reconciliation of all things in Christ. Now that, it's got some punch to it. This is significant, especially given the allusion here to Ephesians 1, 9 through 11, and, quote, the mystery of God's will, which connects, in my view, this is, I have to say in my view now, because there are many Theologians, including Congdon, that don't believe that Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians. A student of his, someone profoundly influenced by him. I got no gripe with that. As long as I understand that it is Pauline theology and that it is inspired 
and that it is canonical. I got no real problem, but I do believe Paul wrote both Ephesians and Colossians, and I therefore agree with Douglas A. Campbell in his book, The Deliverance of God. It's strange that the two most profound books I've read in the past few years after Ramelli were one was called The Deliverance of God, and the other one was called The God Who Saves. The Deliverance of God and The God Who Saves. And the second title is more significant in, of course, because in theology, because we're dealing not just with the act, but with the one who saves. In fact, in one sense, the one who saves is the act of salvation. These are things that are just part of the runway that we're going to take off on. So again... This allusion is to Ephesians 1, 9 to 11, the mystery of God's will, which connects, in my view, to the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery in Romans 16, 25 to 26. Now, this, there's a battle for this verse, too, because almost, I, th- I think the majority of people I have read, and even some translations note this, they don't think Paul wrote Romans sixteen twenty five to 27 either. A student did it. Someone interpolated it. But I think not only did is it Pauline, but I believe that it, it belongs at the end of all of Paul's epistles as the capstone. The proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery is what they're all about. The question that we asked at the end of Revelation, are Paul's epistles like the book of Revelation an apocalypse? And Romans 16, 25 to 27 says, yes. There are many who don't think that Paul wrote or intended to put Romans 16:24 in where, it, where we have it in our translation. I am saying that it does belong there. I'm saying 16.25 to 27 does belong there. And then there's a whole bunch of other theologians that say 16.17 to 20 is an interpolation or later edition. And I don't square with any of these guys. So I want you to know right up front, I'm all for 16.17 to 20, 16.24, 16.25 to 27, all being part of Romans. And it's funny that they're fighting about these parts because in these parts, really, the essential message of Romans is found. Very interestingly. I just thought I'd let you know that studying isn't just, oh, this guy's right and this guy's wrong and, this, and I like what this guy says, but he says this and I don't agree with that. And I like what she says, but I don't agree with this. And I, so there's this constant thing. And we have to be very careful about saying, well, the Spirit led me to this because... The Spirit's a perfect teacher, but we're imperfect students, and we don't always know when we're hearing from the Spirit. So, every elect individual, in my view, is indeed commissioned to be a witness to the reconciliation of all things in Christ. And I think you can always bear, I'll bear witness to this. That's what we're called to be, a witness to the reconciliation of all things in Christ. You say it's difficult to do that if you don't believe in the reconciliation of all things in Christ. So God, I would have to say carefully, cautiously, has led us to that insight. 
The hope that we have and hold is the form that our awakened faith takes. What is faith? Our faith, which is awakened by God in our encounter with the gospel or the proclamation, the kerygma, is awakened by God, but it takes the form of hope. Why do I say that? Well, partly because the Bible says faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith awakened by God takes on the form of hope. And that hope is what distinguishes us from those who have not yet been awakened to faith. It isn't morality. It isn't good works. It isn't anything that we normally associate with being Christian or a good Christian that separates us from those in the world or that distinguishes us. It's the possession of hope. That's all. As I'll explain, I hope more and more. See, there's hope in hope. So then, the hope that we have and hold is the form that our awakened faith takes when we orient ourselves to the future of God and of Christ. We're sharing God's future. We're sharing Christ's future. It is this hope that people may inquire of us about, and we must stand ready to give the reason for it. Referring here specifically to 1 Peter 3.15. Again, faith which God awakens in each elect individual takes on the form of hope for faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Hebrews 11.1. 1. And the things for which we hope is that all things will be reconciled to God in Christ. Hope is rooted in faith because all things have been reconciled to God in Christ. And why are we waiting for it? That's the question Paul wrote, asks in Romans 8, 24 and 25. If something that already happened, why do we yet wait for it? Because though it already happened as a fact in the eternal God, it has yet to happen in the manifestation to creation in time. We hope. Our hope is firm and fixed like an anchor because our hope is in a fact of what already occurred in God at the cross in Christ. But what we wait for and we urgently desire more than anything, at least I do, is for the manifestation of that reconciliation to happen in the whole world, all things, all creation. So hope is rooted in faith because all things have been reconciled in Christ. They have been. Now listen carefully. There's a paradox here. Don't trip over the paradoxes of God. This is the paradox of the very famous already and the yet to be. It's called already and not yet. Almost all theologians have played with that, agreed with it, disagreed with it, fine-tuned it or whatever. But there is the already and the yet to be. The already, this is my definition for it for now. We're on a moving viewpoint, so it could change. And if it changes, it's only getting because it'll get better. The already 
is in the fact. Put that in all caps if you want. The fact, F-A-C-T. The already is in the fact in the eternal God. The yet to be is in the manifestation to creation and in creation, including all of humankind. Once again, people who have and hold this hope are assured that God has and holds them. People who have and hold this hope are assured that God has and holds them. I have this hope, which is the assurance that God has me. Now, these who have this hope, that's you, we who have this hope are distinguished from others who are yet without this hope, not by any moral, racial, gendered, ethnic, cultural, political, or religious superiority. None of that stuff. But we are distinguished by our possession of hope. So it's a hope that purifies indeed, as 1 John 3, 3 says, he that has this hope, she that has this hope in him or her purifies herself. That hope is a purifying hope. But it is not this purity that distinguishes the holder of hope from others. It's the hope itself that distinguishes us from those who have no hope. We don't preach our purity. For that's something in process and something debatable at any stage of spiritual growth. But we do preach our hope. And Christ Jesus is our hope. First Timothy 1 1. We preach Christ Jesus and not ourselves. And we present ourselves at your service. Paul says. That's at the service of fellow believers, but it's also at the service of the world for Christ's sake. Second Corinthians 4, 5. And loop that over in an arc of coherence to 520. We are we preach Christ Jesus and not ourselves and ourselves your servants for Christ's sake. And we are ambassadors of this word of what? Of reconciliation. So election and call are one thing. Election, our, our election and our call to be witnesses to the reconciliation of all things are one. They're one thing. That's why Second Peter is so important. In 1, 9 and 10, make your calling an election sure. Not sure to God, sure to you. You're calling an election, one thing. Calling an election, one thing. Calling an election, one thing also in Romans 1, 7 that we'll close with tonight. So when we give a reason for the hope that is in us, 1 Peter three fifteen, we are preaching Christ. When we give a reason for the hope that is in us, we are preaching Christ. So if you're not freaked out because the stocks took a thousand point dip twice this past week, somebody might ask you why. 
you're not panicking. Well, even money people will tell you not to panic. It's some kind of correction or adjustment. I don't care. I just, once in a while, I have it on mute, and I just like to watch the stocks go up and down like this and then see the people on there starting to get, like, wide-eyed and breathless. But there's many things that are going to happen in this world, and you're going to seem to be, well, maybe even they'll accuse you of being sort of uncaring about things when it's just peace. Well, why do you... Why are you this way? Well, I just simply have confidence that God is going to reconcile all things in Christ. And in one sense, he already has. And I just have this hope. When you give a reason for the hope that's in you, you're preaching Christ. We are proclaiming Jesus Christ according to the mystery of God's intention to sum up everything in Christ. We are missionary witnesses to God's reconciliation of all things in Christ. I'm quoting now. Congdon. We are missionary witnesses to God's reconciliation of all things in Christ. I am quoting Congdon. I'm saying that because maddeningly, I hate my spell checker. And I have to, I got to get it off. Because when I'm writing to people about something, Congdon always comes up as condom. And I'm saying, no, damn it, I'm not trying to say condom. So you write somebody, I'm reading a guy named Condom. And they're going, you're what? And you go, I mean Congdon. You know, it's just like poor Stan in Ohio. Every time I write Satan, it comes out Stan. So I call Stan Satan just to balance out the scales a little bit. So it's Congdon. Congdon. Just like he said, we are, <laughs> oh boy, I've been away too long, I think. But we are all missionary witnesses to God's reconciliation of all things in Christ. And this witness is effective for one reason. Because of the spirit of Jesus Christ who is with us and in us forever. John fourteen seventeen. Because of the spirit of Jesus Christ the spirit of Jesus Christ who is in one sense Jesus Christ in the spirit. He is the spirit of the crucified Christ. He's not some other ghostly person. The missionary witnesses who salute the Roman saints include three of Paul's kinsmen or fellow countrymen who are Israelites in other words. In order of their mentions in the book of Acts, oddly enough, their, mention, their names are mentioned in order of their mentions in the book of Acts. Lucius is the same as Lucius of Acts 13.1, who was from Libya in North Africa. He was an African Jew and a believer. Though his name is Latin, as Paulus, P-A-U-L-U-S, Paul's name in Latin, or Roman, the Roman name Paulus, P-A-U-L-U-S, is Latin, so is Lucius, L-U-C-I-U-S, is a Roman or Latin name. And though he has a Latin name, like Paul did, he was a Jew from Libya. Lucius probably comes from a root word which means shining or lucid and clear. In other words, he is enlightened. He has the gospel. He's enlightened. Lucid, Lucius, lucid, clear, insightful. His name means insightful. He was with Paul in Antioch. 
Jason was mentioned next. Probably the same Jason of Acts 17, 6, 7, and 9. Jason took in Paul and Silas in Thessalonica when they were being hounded by certain hostile, unbelieving Jews from the synagogue who rounded up some Gentile thugs from the market square there in Thessalonica who were loitering, didn't have anything to do. And they, so the Jews said, how'd you like to go beat up some guys for us? He said, sure. So... What they did is they surrounded Jason's house in order to lure Paul and Silas out so they could probably kill him. So Jason was hospitable in the sense where it really counts. Hospitable in the sense that when you take someone into your home, you defend them with your life. Jason, good man, part of the team. Jason also accompanied Paul on the missionary team from Thessalonica to Corinth where Paul wrote Romans, the epistle. So Jason's name also means he that will cure. I don't usually go by these, by, you know, going into this etymology of names, but this has just really piqued my curiosity because of the team's names here. Jason means he that will cure. His very name denotes the healing of the great physician in the reconciliation or healing of all things. So Sipater, S-O-S-I-P-A-T-E-R, is probably the same one who has a shortened name, Sopater, S-O-P-A-T-E-R, of Berea, who is the son of Pyrrhus, mentioned in Acts 20 in verse 4. He also accompanied Paul on his journey from Philippi after his third missionary journey. And intriguingly, the name Sopater comes from, some of you are already probably guessing, Sozo for save and Pater father, the father who saves. Sopater or Sosipater is the lengthened name of it. So he's probably the same Sopater, Sopater of Berea. It's like William and Bill, Sosipater. Sopater, the son of Pyrrhus. In order of mention then, Acts 13, Acts 17, Acts 20, and verse 4, he accompanied Paul on his journey from Philippi in Macedonia after his third missionary journey. And so these three men were with Paul in Corinth when he was writing Romans. Just as Paul had an effective missionary team around him, so today the work of theology is a collaboration with many theologians from many countries, many places, many times, male and female. Now, interestingly, and I mean more than interestingly, Paul is careful to mention that all three of these men were his kinsmen. Here's another S-U word, S-U-G-G. E-N-E-I-S, sugenis, which means relatives, relations, or born of the same. And it means countrymen in this case. The same word is used in Paul's lament for his fellow Israelites after the flesh in Romans 9.3, that they might be saved, that they would be saved, Romans 9.3. And, of course, his lament is cured at the end of Romans 11.32 because there he realizes that God intends to do mercy to all. So, as with Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, or Sosipater, are living witnesses. 
So Paul himself is to God's intention to save all of Israel. Paul said, I myself am an Israelite, and therefore I am a living example of God's intention to save all of Israel. And we'll see this in a curious place, Romans 7 sometime fairly soon too, in the center towards which we are pushing. So these men also serve as a gentle rebuke to those who may still be holding on to Gentile arrogance and ressentiment against Jewish Christians in Rome, especially group two in Paul Menier's excellent analysis, who called themselves the strong and who despised the weak, the so-called weak being generally Jewish Christians who remain scrupulous with regard to the observance of certain feast days and kosher rules of eating and drinking. It's kind of like, but not exactly like, but a little bit like Protestants who despise Catholics because they do these rituals and they have these dietary rules, that kind of thing. Kind of like, but not quite like. Everything in Romans is an ambassadorial proffer for peace among the groups of saints in Rome. Or as I put it in another way, in Psalm 85, 8, it's a way of God speaking peace to his people. Yahweh will speak peace to his people. Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh, says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And so, finally, it should be noted in keeping with our pincer strategy, pinching from the two flanks to the center. Let's go to the left flank, Romans 1.7. It should be noted then in keeping with our pincer strategy that these gestures or salutes may be connected with Paul's own special salutation of the saints in Rome at the beginning of Romans especially in Romans 1. You see, so much goes into each one of these messages. Ideally, I should be away for a month and come back and preach a message. Be away for a month and come back and preach a message. Be away for a month and come back and preach a message because these things come together only after really long periods of time. Now, that's ideally. We don't live in an ideal world. So, we're back in the grind. So then, in Romans 1, 7, to all those who are in Rome, loved. Now, loved, as we'll see down the road, is a synonym for elected. Loved, which also means elected by God. To all the saints in Rome, loved or elected by God, called. Elected, called. They're called saints. So I like the word saints because Paul uses it all the time. He doesn't say believers very often, sometimes. He never says Christians, ever. He says saints a whole lot of times. And it may be rooted in Daniel 7 where we have the Son of Man who shares his dominion with 
the saints of the Most High God, the saints. So Paul's talking about the advancement of the dominion of the Son of Man through the saints, the saints. They are, I like saints better than believers because believers may believe if faith, or saints may believe if their faith is awakened. But saints simply means someone whom God has sanctified. The action of God is demonstrated in the word saints because God has made Christ to be our sanctification. So believers is okay if what you're doing is believing, and Christian is okay if you're manifesting Christ. But saints, I kind of like settled down on that term because it emphasizes the action of God done to us. Saints, elected and called. Called saints. Grace to you and peace. There it is. Speaking peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is further borne out in verses 22 to 24, which we'll have to wait till next midweeks to do, primarily. But it ends with a disputed Pauline closing salutation in Romans 16, 24. And I say disputed. You read, maybe your translation that you have tonight has it in brackets. Maybe it's even omitted it. Maybe it's in italics because it's disputed in so-called the best manuscripts, it's not found. It is found in the majority text, and sometimes I lean toward the majority or the Byzantine text, but I'll show you why I think it belongs. I say that it's disputed, but please notice what it says. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Pantone humon. You say, it doesn't belong there because he already did that in Romans 16.20. And then another person will say, but he didn't write 16.20. See, these guys are all mixed up. So here, I'm taking my stand in believing Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians and the other undisputed epistles. And I believe that Romans 16.24 belongs, 16.17-20 belongs, 16.25-27 to belongs. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. But in Romans 16, 20, he just says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So he adds all. He seems to be saying his same greeting, but repeating it with a little bit of addition, a little bit of augmentation. He adds the word all there, panton, a word that he likes to use eh, 75 times or so in Romans. And then the last one is in 1627 where he simply doesn't greet, but he ends with a glorious doxology. To him be the glory, etc. So I say that this verse is disputed because it's omitted in many manuscripts and consequently it's concluded to be not genuine even by the very conservative Southern Baptist exegete A.T. Robertson said it's not genuine. The Holman Christian Standard Bible has the verse in brackets, fairly, noting that other manuscripts omit the bracketed text. The New American Standard Bible has the verse in italics, and the NET, the Net Bible, the New Jerusalem Bible, both omit it. They simply omit it. While the ESV notes says, quote, some manuscripts and translations add verse 24. So here's where I have to take a little stand here. I will not say that the verse has to be there just because of the correlation to Romans 1-7, which fits my strategy, pincer strategy. So I won't say it on that basis just to preserve our pincer strategy. But I will say 
that this concluding salutation is not unpauline. If you see 1 Corinthians 16, 24, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 28, for example, or 16, 21 to 24, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 28. So it's true that the same salutation appears almost in its totality in Romans 16, 20. However, what's lacking in 16, 20 and present in 16.24 is a little word I like to call pantone. The last word in Revelation. Pantone. All. Which Paul may well intend to accentuate in a more conclusive salutation in keeping with its emphasis on all in this epistle. Not only for the purpose of the universality of salvation, listen carefully, not only for the purpose of accentuating the universality of salvation, but also for the purpose of accentuating unity among all the saints in Rome. So I choose to go with the Byzantine or what it's known as the majority text and include Romans 16.24 in Romans while I concede at the same time that it may have been added by a protege of Paul who understood the apostles' purposes. But in this study, I accept it as I accept 16, 17 through 20 and 1625 to 27 in fact i call 1625 and 27 to 27 not only the capstone of romans but perhaps the capstone of the entire collection of pauline epistles because it identifies all of the epistles under the heading of the proclamation kerygma of jesus christ according to the apocalypse revelation of a musterion a mystery because this kerygma, this proclamation of Jesus Christ, is the point where people contact God in an apocalyptic interruption of their existential, historical, individual life. The act of that confrontation is something we call salvation. God doesn't just save every, he saves each. And each person is the subject and the object of a divine act of salvation in which a person is saved from herself or from himself. Salvation from annihilation, from hell, from all the things that people like to put in metaphors really boils down to the salvation from ourselves. Salvation from ourselves. Uh, what are we saved from, if not from hell, from ourselves? And take yourself and multiply it to infinity. You've got eternal hell. We're saved from ourselves. He that keeps his life shall lose it, but he who loses his life is the one who's saved from himself, shall find his life unto eternal life in a new kind of new creation life. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word in which we see very small things, little greetings, but these little greetings have very large significances attached to them. We thank you for this privilege. 
We pray for Brian tomorrow as he brings a message of hope and consolation. 